Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Amazon has announced that it's buying MGM Studios, the home of James Bond, Stargate, Silence the Lambs and around 4,000 other titles to bolster its Amazon Prime video business. But what does the announcement mean for customers and what can we expect following the completion of the deal Well, sometime in the future? Pocket Rick Henderson joins me to discuss the big news. Meanwhile, I talk to Robert Wigley, the chairman of UK Finance, on a new book he's written, not about the economy, but about how technology is changing his relationship with his sons and whether that's something we should all be worried about in the future. And Pocalins Dan Grabham has been using the new ultra-thin M1-powered iMac. Do you still need a desktop computer in this age? And has Apple successfully reinvented the computer that started that revolution some 23 years ago? But first, back to you, Rick. Is it likely to shake or stir the industry? Well, I mean, it was a big deal, wasn't it? Uh, Big tech getting into movie production yet again. Um, Amazon has bought MGM, or at least is in the process of buying MGM, Hmm. due to the regulators still have to approve it. Um, It's actually really exciting because, quite frankly, it could mean that Amazon Prime Video becomes a massive resource for MGM films, although it must be pointed out that uh, I was quite surprised myself to find out that it doesn't include anything pre-1986, so it doesn't actually include The Wizard of Oz, which is probably MGM's biggest movie of all time. Yeah, now it'd be interesting also to see, I suppose, from the nitty-gritty of it, of whether like we saw with Disney and uh, and Star when they launched that service some of the titles that they own have already been licensed out to other streaming services or other services TV show TV stations and stuff for some time and therefore you know we have to see those deals come to an end over over time of of how much content that is but it's certainly in the short term it's going to bolster their their catalog quite considerably isn't it Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, part of what uh, Amazon was after, as well as the uh, the 4,000 plus movies that MGM has since 1986 and on. And we're talking big, big films, things mm. like Oscar winners like uh, Science of the Lambs and uh, Thelma and Louise. So they have massive properties. And of course, the Bond franchise, which um, which seemingly, and we don't, we haven't had, full clarity on this yet but seemingly actually includes the films uh, pre-1986 because it's all sort of like one big bundle the bond franchise um and of course no time to die so uh excitingly most bond fans um i've been chatting to are ve- myself included are very excited that no time to die might end up on streaming sooner than we expected yeah, so, and I suppose I mean that's going to be the interesting thing, and it, I suppose the other thing this is is for me is that it's not just a you know if it was another movie studio where we've seen you know previously big deals like this you know probably the most famous one too recently was was Disney buying Lucas Arts i.e. the Star Wars franchise and Disney buying Marvel Studios 
you know, and to Fox get, and, and Fox and, and Fox, you know, they they kind of have really bolstered it to to grow that subscription service. You know, Disney Plus got hundred million users, users already. This is the first time we've seen a big technology company getting into this place to try and bolster it because you know Netflix has probably had the cash to be able to do this. I mean, it invests eighteen billion a year in in building shows and, and buying licenses and things like that. What do we think about that in terms of tech getting into into the movie business? Well, I actually think that, that this is only another step. Um, the Fox deal has greatly improved uh, Disney Plus recently. We saw that they're uh, they're about to put all of Walking Dead, for example, onto Star on Disney Plus in Europe, um, including the brand new series will premiere on Disney Plus. It's normally been uh, been on the Fox Channel, so um, so that's that is it's big for Disney Plus. So they've got that sewn mm. up. Um, and Netflix obviously has the money for its own originals. Where Amazon Prime was kind of uh, kind of lacking was um, its own Amazon Studios weren't really putting out the kind of content that Netflix was. Um, so that will be bolstered. I also see, and I'm, I can't believe that Apple weren't already in negotiations with M- MGM until Amazon outbid them. Apple will surely buy someone as well um to bolster its tv plus service the the thing for me is that big tech are getting into this space because big tech has been rather a beneficiary of the pandemic Mm. whereas movie studios have been it's hard to say they've been hardest hit by the pandemic but they've been hit very badly by it with cinemas closing etc etc so um so these companies are there for the taking and i'm not saying that in a way that, that that i approve of it fully but they are they are there for the taking and you can see that big tech with the money which is where it you know certainly amazon i mean as a retail site it's done brilliantly over the last two years so i can see that they're going to invest that money where they can and to bolster their streaming services where we all think that everything is going is such a wise move um i can't believe that apple won't won't buy someone within the next six months let alone 12 I suppose the question, though, for Apple will be whether there is anybody to buy. Um, you know, we've got Paramount and Peacock in, in the US launching. They haven't launched here yet, but they're kind of both of those businesses aren't as simple as just picking out those bits because they're tied in with huge sports conglomerates and, and, and other cable networks and, and all the other stuff. MGM did feel like a quite a clean deal in that, you know, it is a studio that's got a huge repertoire of, of content but doesn't have any other associated businesses in to muddy the waters in terms of, you know, making it, you know, complicated to buy because you've got to disentangle a load of, you know, a load of other bits and bobs. Do you, how do you feel about sort of, you know, Bond, for example, has always been incredibly focused on on product placement over the last, you know, 20 years, if, if not more. Uh, we certainly saw that with the Pierce Brosnan Bonds, didn't we, where it was, you know, driving, crashing through, Perrier trucks and watches and you know cars and and all those you know phone brandings and things like that in there as well do you think Amazon will be able to leverage some of that retail prowess that it has to be able to you know really tie up that 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 franchise you know from movie to 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 store shelf uh, model more effectively Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, it will be doing lots of things on its retail site that are Bond related, uh, certainly around the times of big movie releases. Um, be amusing as well if Bond has to buy his gadgets on Amazon Prime Day. 
Mm. Yeah, um, I suppose, in... or, or just, you know, I can imagine a, an Echo show turning up here and there. <laughs> yeah. or oh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, the, uh, the interesting part, though, is that obviously the last few Bond films have always had very strong Sony tie-ins mm. because of um, Sony Pictures being the distributor for the films. So it would be interesting to see whether that's just completely severed from now on. Um, I would imagine so. So, yeah, and whether I suppose, and whether you know things like this, you start to think even more, don't you, of whether the next Bond, because Craig's obviously Daniel Craig's obviously said that he's this is the last one, of whether that the new Bond will be picked based on his appeal to uh, perhaps a more streaming audience, and you know to to fit in with more of a an, an Amazon uh, an Amazon kind of customer, so to speak. Um, I well, Eon will still own the rights ultimately of making the bond films mgm owns the rights to putting them on screen and producing them um so uh, i think eon will be very protective of its property however i think you touched on something very interesting earlier which is that we could well see some spin-off tv shows mm. on amazon prime and it, i i wonder and i was i almost had um sort of like the sweats thinking about this whether or not they'll go for two james bond actors much like we've seen in the old Jason Bourne films and, and things like that, or uh, that you see James Bond on big screen, but also James Bond or a James Bond alike on the small screen that's a totally different actor. Or you could do it, I suppose, like, you know, young Indiana Jones. You know, you've got that kind of ability to tell, you know, James Bond as a boy, as a TV show to kind of create that, you know, we're all, we've come accustomed to the Marvel Universe and therefore the Tom Clancy Universe or the, or the, the DC universe, or all these different things, and and even more so with like Mandalorian and and you know on, on Star Wars front, you know, telling the backstories and and the future stories, or you know the present stories, or sideline stories, alternate universe, you know, multiverse stories. That would yeah. absolutely make sense. Um, Charlie Higson already has a an enormous amount of uh, young James Bond books out there, and so that that would give it a platform, wouldn't it? That is not necessarily you know, that's tied in is owned by the same distribution company because MGM never really had had the ability to kind of leverage into TV in the same way that, you know, using the Charlie Hickson books would allow Amazon to do so. Yeah, and and quite frankly, all of this comes back round to the fact that uh, with Disney Plus and Netflix having such success, it does seem that Amazon Prime has kind of missed an opportunity in the last year or so and has kind of faltered slightly um mm. especially when you look at their originals programming um you know they they went through some controversy with a uh, um transparent so um so they kind of have of laxed lacked behind the other two so i mean you know mgm doesn't just have the bond franchise it has an enormous catalog of really big name stuff and it could just leverage that so well um it's it's a it's a brilliant deal for amazon and hopefully it'll be a brilliant deal for the consumer as well still to come dan gives us his verdict on the new apple imac i believe it is a it is a bit of a ticking time bomb because we've got my kids for example expect to be able to touch to touch screens by day robert wigley is the chairman of uk finance he was a court member of the Bank of England during the 2008 financial crisis and more recently worked with the UK government alongside the Home Secretary and Chancellor as part of the UK's Economic Crime Strategy Board to better harness tech. He's helped to develop world-leading private 
public partnerships, engaging AI to combat fraud and other economic crimes and improve counterterrorism. And if that wasn't enough, he also works with leading banks and new fintech businesses as they transform the banking industry to a digital one. So it's perhaps surprising that when he's not busy doing all that, he's been busy writing a book on how technology is changing his relationships with his adolescent sons. Called Born Digital, the book looks at a range of topics including how children's attention spans are getting shorter, how technology affects our self-esteem and mental well-being, and what, if anything, we need to do about it. I started by asking why he started writing the book in the first place. It's not obvious for me, is it? No, really two things. So one, uh, watching my own three adolescent children growing up, observing how they use technology and how it's affected the development of their personalities and the way they see the world. And then about two years ago, because I spent quite a bit of my time backing young entrepreneurs, I decided to meet a new Generation Z entrepreneur every day, every business day for, for two years. Uh, I've known over 200. It was really those meetings that cemented my view that there was a book to be written on this subject. And so what what did you what did you learn? Well, what I learned was that uh, <laughs> what I knew, I guess, was that we're all addicted to our technologies. But for Generation Z, uh, they are profoundly more addicted because they've never known a time when there wasn't technology around. Uh, and that mm. uh, over the last 10 years, as, as these technologies have become ubiquitous in our life, um, some other things have happened that are quite worrying, uh, and that that is things like the rate of uh, loneliness, unhappiness, uh, anxiety, depression, sadly, self-harm and suicide have all gone up substantially. So what I wanted to do in the book was explore the link between those two things, look at the good and the bad of technology and try and draw some conclusions. And so, I mean, ultimately, without trying to, you know, I, I know we're here to encourage people to, to read your book, but what conclusion did you find out in the end? Well, what I, what I discovered is that uh, all screen time is not equal. So, you know, if we're spending time uh, concentrating on watching a film or educating ourselves, that's probably fine. Uh, if we're spending a lot of time just chilling and scrolling idly through social media or, or uh, gaming uh, or on porn, it's probably not so good for us. And there are some pretty negative, uh, you know, Im- implications of the particularly combinations of those three things. And what we know is that Generation Z spends between eight and 10 hours a day on screens overall. So it's about what you do when you're there. It's also about your personality. So as, as all screen time is not equal, so all users are not equal. And what we find is that those who are vulnerable in the offline world are even more vulnerable online. And so how do you think we can go about teaching you know, do you think we need to teach children uh, about the use of social media and about screen time and, and, and its effects? Or do you think do. it's just something that, that should be left to parents? Yeah, I think that, firstly, I think parents need to wise up a little bit uh, about the fact that when we when we engage with our kids, we tend to talk to them about their offline day. We don't delve much into their online day, and that's a mistake. And I, and I know this. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm not claiming to be any great parent. Anybody else isn't. But I know if I say to my son, he'll tell me that, you know, he went out and met John and played football or he's out in the garden or whatever what he won't do is tell me what he was doing in the three hours he was on snapchat and instagram between 11 o'clock at night and two o'clock in the morning uh, who he was talking to and, and the kind of things they were talking about and that's a mistake from my on my part for not asking you know and you can do that i think without prying i think the second thing is we do need to see the education system recognize that um children now develop their personalities in an online world and so just as we give them sex education at school as part of the national curriculum, I think we need responsible internet use. 
as part of the national curriculum. In fact, I would argue it's a much more ubiquitously necessary skill um, earlier in, earlier in your childhood than, frankly, sex education is. And do you think that's something that teachers are equipped to do? Because, you know, if you no, look back, I don't. I don't. Know, I've been covered technology for 20 odd years and it's that sense of you know 20 years ago we didn't have this issue 10 years ago we didn't have you know likes of snapchat five years ago we didn't have tiktok it's a constantly changing platform you know constantly changing landscape yeah no i don't think i don't think a lot of uh, uh, teachers would be would be skilled enough to do it quite frankly they would need training themselves um and materials would need, need to be prepared for them um, and, and, I, and I think the government has a responsibility here to introduce some kind of um, responsible internet use education course. And probably a bit like many schools bring in outsiders to teach sex education because it's quite, it's quite complicated and you know, it's sensitive and nuanced. I think this could be the same. And how do you feel that with your own relationship and, and how do you feel that, that parent-child dynamic is changing with technology? Um, well, the, the truth is, I think arguments about screen time are a central tension in many families. And in fact, COVID uh, has exacerbated that somewhere as we've all been locked down and you know, we've had no choice probably for many people than to let their kids spend more time on, on screens. That kind of central tension has become a bigger one. So uh, it is, I think, about educating yourself about what, you, what, your, what your child is doing online when they're there. Uh, and involving your, yourself, as I said, in their in their online day. And do you think that you talk about this constant bombardment of of information? And you know, we're 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 all guilty of spending too much time on social media. And as you say, you know, some screen time is good, and sometimes screen time is bad. What do you think the impact is going to be? And what are you seeing when you when you've gone talk to all these these entrepreneurs? What 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 is the impact of all this? Well, so the, so the good news is that Generation Z itself um, ha, has recognised, or some of some of some of Generation Z has recognised that the issue of digital overload, and they're already kind of uh, the older ones are already developing uh, ways of, of digitally detoxing. There's actually um, a very interesting growing sector in the UK called the safety tech sector, where young entrepreneurs are coming together to come up with ideas for how to protect us from the bad of the internet. Uh, and um, I'd like to see the UK be a global leader in that area. Uh, and I think we can be, and I'm, I'm working with DCMS to try and promote it. And I was going to say, how do you, it seems like this feels like the conversation has been very negative so far. Hopefully there are some positives here, but, but also do we see, do you see a, a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a way out? Uh, yeah, look, so the book is not is not at all negative. The book simply analyzes the facts and some of the facts are not very pleasant. Um, but overall, the book is positive. I'm very positive about Generation Z. These 200 meetings I had um, bowled me over, actually, with uh, with the enthusiasm, the passion. And, and now one of the big differences is that halfway through most of the business pitches, I suddenly realized that what I was being talked to about was a, was a social enterprise, not a business as I would understand it. So if you think right. what we're what we're kind of leaving our kids, we are leaving them the sort of overhang of the global financial crisis. We're leaving them right now. We're leaving them COVID debt. Uh, we're leaving them a damaged planet um, and the sort of aftermath and continuing global war on terror. <laughs> so not a great set of cards. The good news is they want to solve these problems. And so a lot of the ideas they come up with in terms of the businesses they want to start, and they are ubiquitously entrepreneurial in their attitudes. Um, are around solving societal problems. They think the sort of capitalist model is broken. 
Uh, and if, if a business doesn't have some purpose that goes beyond just making profits for its shareholders, it probably doesn't have a future. So I'm I'm very positive about this generation. I think they're going to change the world for the better. That's obviously a great thing for the forward thing. Do you do you feel there's anything that I suppose from a benefits perspective of 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 kids having access to technology, is it allowing, you know, have you found in your experience in your research that, you know, it's allowing greater learning, it's allowing greater interaction with people, or, or is it just a case of it, that's to come as we understand how to to cope with, with the new challenges that we face? Yeah, no, look, we've, we've, we've inevitably in our conversation focused on the negatives. So there are many positives from technology. I mean, they, the technology has transformed our lives in terms of the way we educate ourselves, we entertain ourselves. Uh, we collect information, we find jobs, um, we start and build businesses. So fa- fabulous benefits from technology. I just think we need to be a little more educated about some of the downsides and make sure that we're protecting our children. And I, I, just one quick thing here. Uh, the UK government is actually introducing a bill this year called the Online Harms Bill. That will, for the first time ever in the world, put a responsibility on the big tech platforms to think about the damage they might be causing particularly to children through their products and services, and to take action to, to mitigate those harms. So I do think on that, that the, the, the British government deserves some credit because this is the first time anybody in the world has done this. It is that sense, isn't it? Because it feels at the moment online where the big tech platforms are like, well, it's not really our fault or our issue because you know it's just a platform. We can't really control. We don't want to control what people are saying on, online. And then the users are saying, well, look, you know, this is not fair. This is kind of almost akin to gambling in some senses where you need to help me because otherwise I'll just stay here forever because of the metrics that are kind of, you know, the the, the typing buttons, the the red dots to say you've got notifications and, and likes and all those kind of things. So so I agree with you. They they, they have not wanted to, to take responsibility. And I think that's why, unfortunately, regulation is the only way forward, because they need to be forced to take responsibility. Um, think about, about it a bit like health and safety legislation. You know, we had an industrial revolution. We had dangerous machinery in our factories. Mm. And it was a very long time after that that the government legislated to force our businesses to take responsibility for the safety of their employees. You know, it's been 10 years during which time this, this technology has become ubiquitous. Um, and now regulation needs to cut to catch up and force the big techs to take responsibility for the damage it might be causing to some of us. Well, I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think the other quick thing, if I may, is anonymity. So we, we yeah. you can't go into a, a booze shop uh, and buy alcohol without ID. You can't um, buy cigarettes. You can't uh, gamble. You can't buy drugs. All of these things require ID. Um, why do we allow people to roam around the internet pretending they're someone else? Um, because if, if when we signed onto a big, big tech platform, we had to identify ourselves and prove who we were, most of the bad behavior, by which I mean really three things, hate speech, cyberbullying, and um, technology-assisted child sexual abuse, would be um, massively discouraged because those people who currently can be anonymous would know that if another user complained about them to the platform, the platform would be able to report them to law enforcement. So I'm afraid I think we we have to um, get a little stricter in the way that we allow people to sign on to platforms. Now, at the end of this process, having having written the book, has it changed the way that you interact with your kids have have you and if so what's kind of the one takeaway that you'd say to other parents listening to this to sort of think about to to work with their kids well so so i mean uh without being 
giving you a facetious answer, the, the poor kids are sick, sick and tired of hearing about the book. So, you know, we'd sit at the dining table and they'd say something and I'd say, great, that's going <laughs> in the book. So, you know, I think I drove them mad in the process. Uh, and, um, yeah, if they hear any more about the book, I think they're going to go mad. But, um, but they did give me fantastic material to put in the book. They all participated in its preparation by reading it and saying, Dad, you haven't got that quite right, or, you know, actually Snapchat works like this, or, you know, have you thought about Twitch and e-gaming? You know, loads of great ideas. So I think we've developed a better understanding of each other uh, in both directions, you know, my attitude to technology and their attitude to technology in the process. Um, and, and I hope it's one that um, reduces, as it were, these tensions that I talked about that exist in most households around screen time and what kids are up to on their screens. After Steve Jobs introduced the iMac in 1998, it changed Apple, providing the catalyst for reinvention of a company from a niche PC maker into the conglomerate of today. The iMac was highly unconventional, brilliantly colourful, and had the Apple hallmark of binning tech that some considered essential, but eventually would become obsolete. Yes, DVD players, USB hubs, all those kind of things, and oh yeah, floppy disks as well. Some 23 years on, and Apple has returned to the iMac once again, giving us a brand new look and feel to get excited about. But is the new design and processor that powers it a winning formula? Well, Pocket Dan's Grabham is here to give us his verdict on the new desktop computer. Dan, what's it like? Well, it's it, it's a fantastic new design. I mean, what, what we've got here really is the innards of a MacBook Air with in, in a in a interesting new case, really. The um the, the 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 best thing about it is that it's so thin it's really just it's under a couple of centimeters thick really um and it's got this sort of i've got i've actually got a yellow one um because they're in seven different colors mm. um and it's sort of two tones so you've got sort of the the block under the screen which is sort of a a, a, a sort of lighter um and it is it, it is some kind of plastic um uh you know plastic element under 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 glass um and then you've got the the rear of it and also the accessories the keyboard the mouse and the stand that are all metal in the traditional apple uh apple sort of aluminium that um but it just happens to be colored um which is what we're also expecting for the laptops at some point so this has gone so this has gone from a design that was you know that thin incredibly thin edge with a kind of bulbous outlook you know, to, to coming up to that kind of where the stand holds to now it's, it's super thin, isn't it? It's kind of like a thickness of an iPad or something. Yeah. And it's uniform all the way through. There's no, there's the bulge has gone. It's going to be really interesting because obviously this is a 24 inch um, version, which replaces the old 21.5 inch Intel model. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see if Apple have ma- managed to keep the same sort of thickness for the 27 inch replacement. Um, because, you know that that iMac, the the twenty seven inch one that's still available uh, with Intel chips, is you know is really the performance version. Um, it you know it, it even the latest ones actually replaced the the iMac Pro that was out with that uh, sort of Xenon workstation processors and the high end sort of twenty seven inch at the moment. You know is is it's got the Core i nine in. It's 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 a very impressive machine. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Apple deal with the cooling and the graphics side of things when they move to that to that bigger form factor. Right. So let's let's focus on the one that you've got in, in, in front of you, so to speak. Um, 
sometimes Apple gets complaints that you know they they take things so thin and so refined that you have to kind of make sacrifices along the way, and 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 that's just expected of you to you know sacrifice your you know like the sd card because it's thinner or you want you know as we've seen before like no dvd or usb or things like that because it's just too thick did you find when using it that, that to make it that really thin design that, that there are sacrifices you're like oh i wish it had this or i wish it did this there are a couple of things i mean the sd card thing is 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 a is a factor you know there, there's there's four ports on these all of which are USB-C stroke thunderbolt um uh some well, two of them are two of them are standard USB C, two of them are Thunderbolt. Um and uh you know there there have there have been sacrifices. The the Ethernet port, for example, is on the, the, the power plug. Um Apple obviously felt that they needed to keep the Ethernet port, although you know traditionally they've been very sort of talk, talking more about wireless technology. But now in terms of in terms of other compromises, I didn't really feel that, that was that, that that there's been too much of an issue. Um, and, and, and of course, you, the, 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 the M1 chips that are inside this and the MacBook Air and the 30-inch MacBook Pro and the Mac Mini, um, yeah, I mean, it's a very powerful processor. And certainly in terms of performance, you know, it's not left wanting. And it hasn't been a surprise how this, this, this iMac has performed because obviously we've, we've reviewed several machines now with the M1 chip in. Um, but yeah, it can, it can certainly mm. uh, turn to any task and it makes my sort of uh, 2017, 2017 MacBook Pro look a bit tardy in comparison, really. <laughs> and now you've, you've obviously played with the MacBook Air M1. Um, you know, is for all intents and purposes, is this an, a MacBook Air M1, but just with a 24-inch screen? It is. It has got it has got some uh, some cooling inside inside the, Mac, the, the, the iMac, um, just like the 13-inch MacBook Pro has, whereas the MacBook Air is totally fanless. Um uh, it, so, so there is a, there is a difference there, but yes, essentially it's the same. It's the same kit. Um, you know what you're paying for here is obviously the screen on top of the the, the MacBook Air, um, and you know it's a brilliant display as you'd expect. Um, but in terms of flexibility, you know there is a there is obviously a compromise there because you're not you know not able to. I mean, you are able to plug it into another display for a secondary secondary screen, but you're obviously not able to take it with you. We were talking um, previously about how you know a, a macbook air is so portable and and this you know you could you you could take it with you because you could put it under your arm but you still got to plug it in in fact that's the that's that that's sort of the one thing about moving from a desktop to a laptop isn't it you switch off the power and you're like well just let it go to sleep but obviously with a desktop machine you don't do that so it's it it's um you know but it is it, it is still you know if you did need to move between offices every so often you know it's not going to be it, it there's no weight to it really it's 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 you know it's pretty pretty lightweight one of the things i've always struggled with sometimes with the um the imax is that especially when they're in reception areas and stuff like that mm. they look so touchable and, and obviously they don't have a touch screen and and we've talked about this previously in the past now that the fact that it looks like an ipad you know a giant ipad on a stand how tempted were you just to reach out and start touching things on the screen? Did you did you find that, or or is that just my my belief? I, I find this do? all the time there because I, I use um, you know I use Windows ten quite often as well. Um, you know I'm I, you know, and, and 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 Mac OS regularly, um, and also obviously I use iPad, iPhone, Android. So um, you know, out of all of those, the only one that I can't touch is the is is the Mac screen and. You know, I often find myself trying to touch 
you know, I, I, you know, and and the other day I absentmindedly tried to touch into a the two two field of a email because we're so used to doing that on the on on the iPad, and you know, I I I, I believe it is a it is a it is a bit of a ticking time bomb because we've got. Um, you know, certainly my kids, for example, expect to be able to touch to touch screens, um, and you know, in, in by the time they're in the workplace, um, you know, I think that I think devices will be will be different. But of course, Apple would say that the iPad is the solution there, and you know, as we know uh, from you know from the from the the iPad Pro, um, the recent iPad Pro, you know, that is as powerful as one of these now. So, you know, really, we, we, we may we may get to a stage where we're where sort of the the iPad Pro takes over from from these type of devices. And I guess that's I guess that's part of Apple's long term strategy. If you could uh, the final question, really, if you could do anything to make this better, what would you recommend? Well, I guess I, I guess the unknown at the moment is the is the graphics side of things, because, um, you know, the, 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 the graphics capabilities of the M1 is perfectly decent for for most uses but obviously uh you know when when we look at when we look at the sort of performance end you know that requires at the moment it requires you know dedicated graphics from the likes of amd or nvidia um with an intel machine so um you know that that's going to be the interesting thing to see with the with the 27 inch and any performance version of this 24 inch um, you know how that how Apple roll that roll that whole thing out. We we believe they're going to use their own graphics and 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 do it that way. But you know it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. Um, you know over the next year because obviously that does need to be that will be solved because it's you know Apple wants to roll out Apple Silicon to all all of Mac all Macs mm-hmm. um, and obviously you know part of that is rolling out to the the, the very best performance machines. And and would you recommend people getting one is now a good time or is it a bit like with the MacBook Pro 13 inch when we talked about that in oh, like October time last year I think it was wasn't it where we were like this is the first in- iteration you know there will be more things and more exciting things to come maybe you should hold off or do you think with the iMac this is it for the moment if you want to get one this is a great one to get I think it is a great one to get um I think you know we were concerned at first about the transition to apple silicon in terms of software hmm. um, and certainly there's still some apps particularly but they tend to be more niche niche apps mm. that haven't been optimized for for apple silicon yet but it really is few and far between and in terms of a uh, you know a, a transition of software to arm based devices which apple silicon are you know uh, on the windows side you know we're, we're almost 10 years into since the first arm based windows machine um and really uh the, the apps still aren't there and in compar- when you when you talk about in comparison to that, you know Apple have done extremely well, and really you don't notice the difference using using most apps. It you know, uh, as I say, most have been not been optimized. So it's really um, it, it's it, it's really okay to to move to move into this system now. I guess um, you know deals on the the iMacs will come later in the year. Um, certainly, we're seeing deals on the the M one the initial M one MacBook Air and and MacBook Pro, which are quite tasty you know uh, 100 pounds off 100 dollars off and, and that kind of thing hmm. um 
and I, I guess you know in a few months' time that will happen to the iMac as well. So probably probably it's a bit you know in terms of in terms of saving, it's a little too soon to buy one. But um, you know there's there's no reason not to go for not to go for one because of the software or anything. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, pip pip. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 